You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this talk by Pastor Terry Riley titled Creations from the series Foundations. For more info, visit creekside.org. As we begin our, if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to be all over the Bible today. Um, but turn to Genesis chapter 1 as we begin. We're calling it Foundations, a study in Genesis 1 through 11. And let me just get some of the biggie questions out of the way first. Some of you would say, well, can God make a rock bigger than he can carry? For the students, you would say, can God make a pizza bigger than he can eat? Um, You'll have to save those for heaven. I don't know. Some of you want to know, well, did... Did Adam have a belly button? Probably not. He was created. Um, some of you are going to want to know what happened to Dino. Uh, we'll probably answer that as well. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? I believe the chicken because it says God created all living things, and eggs come from chickens. So you have a good introduction out to the book of Genesis. Now, we're going to look at the first 11 chapters in the next few months, and we're going to do, I'm excited about, we're going to do a little team teaching on it, and uh, there's going to be a few of us involved in that process. And um, there's so much room for debate. People become so so passionate about Genesis. Uh, If you you ever talk to somebody, it leads some to disgust, some to to great dialogue, some to a lot of doubt, some, yeah, they're just simply disinterested. And I hope that as we go through this, it will, this overview that we're going to do in the next few months, I'm hoping that it will appetite your desire to maybe go a little deeper and do some reading and research on your own. It's been debated since almost the beginning of time, and it's going to be debated until the end of time. But here's the crucial question, and today is simply an introduction to where we're going. This is, this is crucial, because how we think about ourselves eventually comes out in how we behave. Do you know that? That's why we have all this stuff about self-esteem and, and success and all those kinds of things, because how we think about ourselves is ultimately going to be seen in how we behave. Are we just a happening of nature, or are we deliberately created by the living and creative God? Are we made literally, as Genesis 1 says, in the image of this God? Because our morality and our purpose and our eternal destiny will ultimately rest in the verdict that we come up and the belief system that we embrace. I love what Charles Colson said. The most pivotal question facing us today, he said, was this. To evangelize our culture, we can no longer begin with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But at some point, you're going to have to go back to the book of Genesis. Because thinking people want to know. They want reasons for their belief. Therefore, that's why we're going to spend some time on these chapters today. Excuse me, in in the season ahead. Now, in, in Hebrew, Genesis simply means origins or beginnings. So we see it's where everything starts. So if you look at Genesis chapter 1, and this is where we start next week, but I just want to read a couple of the opening verses. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Somebody said that that's why baseball is so popular in our national ta- pastime, in the big inning. Verse 2, moving on. 
Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. I only read that second part for one reason, because we're going to have baptism in just a little bit. And that's a powerful picture, not what he's talking about here, but a powerful picture of what God does in our lives. Not only does he create all of this beautiful cosmos and universe that we get to experience, but 2 Corinthians 5 talks about this recreation that he does in your life and your heart. And as we move into baptism today, that's what you get to, that's what we're going to get to see people experience is that darkness in our life gets dispelled by the light of God, that what was once formless and shapeless is now spiritual and active and has purpose and destiny. So the word there, Genesis, means beginning. In this, we see where everything starts. We see the creation of the universe and all life forms, and we'll be talking about that next week. We see the beginning of man, the first marriage, the first family, the first promise of the Messiah in these chapters. We see the first man created was Adam. We see the first person born was his son Cain. The first marriage took place with Adam and Eve. In chapter 4, verse 8, we see the first man die as by the first murder when Abel was murdered by his brother Cain. We see the first man not to die in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, where it says that Enoch walked with God and that he walked with him so close that literally God just took him with him one day. We see the beginning of sin and evil in Genesis 3, where the enemy of our soul, Satan, the tempter, the deceiver, in this chapter comes and he tempts Adam and Eve and, and solicits them to go against and to rebel against what God has already told them and they fall and that ushers in sin and death into, this, in, into our lives and into uh, humanity. Now what's important is, loved ones, if you, if you, Genesis 3 is so pivotal because if you rip that out, if you extricate that from the scriptures and a lot of people like to do that, but nothing else makes sense after it. It doesn't make sense why we have so much evil, why we have so much uh, inhumanness in, 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 in our world today, how people can act the way that they do. It doesn't make sense even the way that God begins to, to, to reveal himself in Old Testament history as he tries to protect or works to protect, doesn't try, he works to protect his people from other ancient civilizations that would attack and kill and attempt to destroy so this, the chapter 3 where we see evil come and sin come in is very pivotal. We see in, in, in Genesis chapter 20, uh, 7, 21, we get to see sinners drown. And then in Genesis 9, 20, and 21, we get to see a drunken saint. See, God doesn't sugarcoat or whitewash any of his historical beginnings or these people that become so important at the foundation of our faith. And that's what I love about the reality of the Bible. It's not whitewashed. It's not varnished. You don't have to peel it back many layers before God says, this is what I'm dealing with. And I love that because that's how he deals with you and me. We see the first government and the, and the, and the failure of government to, government to be the answer to anything. We see this relationship with God. In Genesis 1, we see the glory of God in creation. We're in Genesis 1, 1 again. It just says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then in verse 126, we see the Trinitarian uh, God in relationship. We see the first revelation of this thing called the Trinity of God, where God says, let us make man in our image. 
And in our image, they may, in his image, they begin to make us. So we have this imprint, this fingerprint of the living God on our lives. And then we see God's redemptive plan and his work on man's behalf. We're seeing it in the grace of God and salvation toward the end of Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. After they have fallen, what does he do? He removes them from the garden and he protects them from becoming eternal zombies that are in a state of death and decay. Then we see the beginning of everything in, in life. I mean, everything except one thing, the beginning of God. See, Genesis 1 just simply assumes in the beginning, God. See, he's eternal. He's the source of everything. There was no beginning or end with God. That's why in Revelation he's called the Alpha and the Omega. He's, he's everything. His essence is, he, it just starts with him. He was never brought about. He's always been. He always will be. And we see this Genesis as kind of part of this autobiography of God. Consider that if you were writing your autobiography, would you spend chapters trying to prove you existed? No, neither does God. By virtue of the fact that you would be writing your autobiography proved your existence. And so that's really what's happening here with, with God. It's just in the beginning, God. Boom. Starts, takes off. The more I study this word, loved ones, the more I spend time in this Bible, I understand and I begin to see. That's why I have these red threads in my Bible. So I never forget that from the beginning of time until the end of time, we see these, these incredible themes of the life of Jesus. That this God who is always at work from the point of creation until the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. I understand this. This book has been composed supernaturally. There's 66 books in here written by 40 different authors over probably a period of 1,600 years. Written in three different languages over different continents. Yet it's unified and it's composed. The author is ultimately God speaking through revelation to people. This book simply presupposes that God exists. And a lot of people have trouble believing in Genesis and the creation account. Probably some of you may even have times where you doubt even in your Christian faith. But if you do that, you're going to have trouble with a lot of the Bible. You know, you're going to have trouble believing that Jonah swallowed the whale. You're going to have trouble. Good, I'm glad some of you got that. I, <laughs> some of you are paying attention. Thank you. I appreciate that. I want you to stick with me here. I know it's a lot of information today. That's why it's an introduction, but it's important because the whale swallowed Jonah. And sometimes people have a hard time believing that, but there's historical evidence. We got got, um, recorded evidences where people uh, in our modern times have actually been swallowed by large fish and lived through it. You'll have a hard time believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ if you can't believe this other part. So Genesis, the beginning, the first 11 chapters, these come under a heavy scrutiny, a heavy fire from skeptics and critics. People see them, they see them as simply these Bible stories, these allegories that come from ancient uh, Near East mythology. But hear me, the Bible, the scriptures throughout, 
do not hold that view. In the New Testament alone, there's over 100 quotations and direct references to Genesis 1 through 11 because I think that the writers of the New Testament wanted to give give validity and show the veracity of 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 this Old Testament story and how important these are foundationally to our faith. Most scholars agree that it was written by Moses. God communicated to Moses what to write because he wasn't there for the beginning of Genesis. We see Jesus really speaks to the veracity and the truthfulness of, this, uh, of, of these first five books, and especially Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 through 11. As he's walking, remember after he resurrects, a lot of people didn't recognize him initially right away uh, because he's more in his glorified state. So he walks up to these two guys. Remember in Luke chapter 24, these two guys are two, probably a guy and a gal, husband and wife, are walking from... Uh, Jerusalem on this road to Emmaus, a seven-mile walk, and they're sitting there going back and forth, and they're disappointed, despondent, depressed, because the one they put their hope in, Jesus Christ, is not dead. And so they're talking, and they're walking, and they're going, oh, man, how can this be? What are we going to do now? Oh, woe is us. We've got no hope. And all of a sudden, this stranger comes up next to him, starts walking with him, and this is what it says. It says in Luke 24, 27, it said he started speaking of Jesus. He started walking with him and telling them the writings of Moses. The writings of Moses, it's called the Pentateuch, and it's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books of Moses. And it says, and he was explaining from all the scriptures. So Jesus takes these despondent disciples and he goes right back to the first five books of the Bible and he begins to explain to them what happened. So they get this like this seven-mile seminary class. And they're just getting this exposition from Jesus Christ to explain what happened with his death and with his resurrection. See, I just got to tell you, I believe the account of creation in the opening chapters of the Bible. I believe they're literally true. Hebrews 11.3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. God spoke stuff, things, everything into existence. Now hear me, if Christ followers believe that, then we should welcome scientific investigation. I believe science is ultimately God's ally because all truth is systemic to God. When I pray for people to be healed, I pray for the, listen, God, heal this person if you can. But if you're going to use a doctor, do that as well. And I've told you this before, I believe that's why, Je- that's why Jesus picked Dr. Luke to be part of his discipleship team, so that he kind of he says, yes, we can go to doctors, it's not a bad thing. Can I heal? Absolutely. Dr. Jesus, the great physician. But, but, but there's this balance. So this is so important that as we, as we head into this, that we, we understand the balance of the word. Now hear me. I don't, I don't think that we ought to make, make it a test of fellowship in this church that we have to believe the world was created in six 24-hour days or exactly 6,000 years. I don't have a problem with that. But I also, I'm not going to argue with anybody who wants to say, well, I think it was this many years or this, as long as, you know, we're not, we don't need to argue about it. We as Christ followers have to hear what the Bible says and then make some decisions. I'm not going to argue about it. 
We have to learn. Some of us Christians have got to learn to have some flexibility. And instead of seeing everything, there's a lot of things that should be seen this way, like it's on railroad tracks and you just don't get off. But sometimes God gives us much more margin and room for guardrails to live within. Because to me, here's the critical question. Are you and I here by accident or are we here via creation? See, I'm not... And most of us here are not scientists. And I know that the world scoffs at that, oh, that old religious book, bring it out. I mean, it's got nothing to do with science. It's just all about theology, so don't bring that book out on me if we're going to have an intelligent discussion about origins and design. Ah, but wait. To me, in history even, the Bible is probably the most impressive book in the world. It clearly claims to be revelation from the living God. It's the number one bestseller throughout the years. It still continues to be. It has positively transformed the lives of literally millions of people, hundreds in this church. Even though it was written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,600 years, 2,000 years ago, it's reliable. Jesus said this in the book of Isaiah, heaven and earth will pass away but my word will never pass away. So through the centuries, through the millennia, guess what we still have? We still got this book. We still get to come to it and read it. Can you imagine a science textbook 2,000 years old? Can you imagine the flaws in it? I mean, 1,500 years ago, science believed the earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, scientists believed the earth was flat. But you don't read those kind of flaws in the Bible. Well, what do you mean? Well, you know, people say the Bible is so unscientific, it's not a science book. But it really was ahead of its time. When the Bible does touch on areas of science, it's remarkably accurate. For example, Isaiah 40, verse 22, it says this, He, God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. See, that was written at a time when, when the culture believed the world was flat. God sits upon a circle? Well, come on. No wonder all these Christians and, and Israelites and people are crazy. Oh, then in the 15th century, this guy by the name of Christopher Columbus comes about. And what does he do? Job 26, verse 7 says, He suspends the earth over nothing. Uh, people would say the earth hanging on nothing. Come on. Greek thinkers and, and philosophical uh, Greek thinkers with mental prowess. It's not hanging in there. You know what it is? It's, it's held up by Atlas and his bulging biceps. See, isn't it interesting? In times past, everyone had a different belief of how it was held up. Genesis 15.5 says the stars are countless. God, through the psalmist, revealed, he says, you know what? The stars are more... They're more numerous than the sands of the sea. You can't count them. And we understand today through science that, that because of the vastness of our universe, the cosmos, the creation, there's no way we could ever count the number of stars. So see, loved ones, we get to see the veracity of the Scripture. You know, the world is, the world is flat. It's hung by nothing. Most said that's lunacy that it could ever be round, and now we know that it's true. Now, hear me. I, I believe in reading and study and research. But at some point, this belief and understanding comes not solely by 
education, but ultimately by revelation. I really believe that's one of the key reasons that we see people, and never forget this, we see brilliant thinkers and scientists on the, that line up with creation or, or, or have belief in that, just as much as we have brilliant thinkers and scientists over here that say there's no way, they're atheists, and there's no way there's a God, and there's no way that creation can happen. It's not either, it's both. We'll talk about why that happens, I believe. But never forget when you're sitting here, because this, this will probably, some of these things will probably tax you a little more intellectually than some other subjects, and that's important. But never forget there's a difference between education and revelation. Uh, when, when I was in high school, and I didn't study in high school. Uh, when I was in college, I had to study. And, um, and so I went to college, and and, and, and I, I just wasn't a really good student, and, and I had to learn to do that. So I'd go to, my, you know, you know what, three hours before class, I'd get up and study my brains out, and I'd just get as much information in there as I could. And then what I'd do, what would I do? I'd go to class, and then all of a sudden, they'd give me paper and pencil, and I would just regurgitate whatever information I could have stuffed in there. How many students do that? Well, that's what I did. You know what's amazing? I would get up, I would feel so good that I got it done, I'd walk out of my class and I'd go, <laughs> what did I just write down? I couldn't remember it. See, that's what happens with education. You, don't re- you, know, you probably remember 10 to 20% of the things that you learn. But when you get a revelation of who God is and what he's done for you, it'll change your life and you won't forget it. See, the reason is I'm, I'm educated about God. I've been through, through Bible college and all of that, and I continue to learn But the things that I will never forget is the encounters that I've had with God where he's revealed himself to me. Pastor friend of mine said it this way, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Now hear me. I say that because, but I want you to hear this because a lot of guys will say, yeah, there you go, some beamed up preacher again. He's just kind of, you know, it's all about experience. No, it's not. But I believe you can be educated and I believe you can experience the power and presence of God. And ultimately, that's what will change your life. I am not saying, and I will never say this during this series or any other time in this church, that you ever mail your brain off in a brown paper bag and just kind of drink the Kool-Aid. Okay? I want you to drink deeply of the Word of God and allow it to establish deep moorings of faith in your life. Because it will. But it will only happen as if you allow the Spirit of God to come and to reveal it to you. So this powerful phrase, in the beginning, God, people struggle with it. Those opening words. Because isn't it hard for us to get our arms and our mind around infinity and timelessness and eternity that has no beginning and it has no end? Because we are finite people trying to think with an infinite God. Because we, you know what, all we can do is go back in the beginning, creation, okay, good. But it's, it's beyond us to think beyond that. And so because a lot of people can't, they want to eliminate God from the equation. Psalm 14, one put it this way. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So if you eliminate God, you've got a problem considering things like, where do these masses of gases that are floating in space come from? Where do they come from? Something started creation. It had to have a beginning. Without God, 
there's just not an adequate answer. I mean, because then we just got to believe that this universe, well, it's here by accident. But think about how our universe is set up. The earth is approximately 93 million miles away from the sun, yet we're able to live. They say that if our uh, if it's just a number of degrees that our earth is tilted one way or the other, what happens? We become crispy, crispy critters because of the sun, or we freeze to death. Does it just happen? The atmosphere, it's a balanced combination of nitrogen and oxygen. There's an ozone layer or blanket around the earth, and all these things will probably be talked about in, in the first uh, chapter. But what are the chances of all this? Yet we see as you read Genesis 1, you know, it doesn't just say God, you know, God created, and then all of a sudden we're into the fall. But he shows you this this systematic system of order. That's why we call it the solar system. It's a system that's been in place by God. We see it in our human bodies. We're people of design. We have a bloodstream that flows through us. We have a skeletal system, a nervous system, a neurological system, that all of these things work together. That's why it says in, David said in Psalm 139, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're not just by chance or happenstance. All of this speaks of individual design. And you can't have design without a designer. So in the beginning, God, he's the designer, all intelligent, all wise being. And I know this, again, this for some people, it sounds oh, just another you know, Bible person. But for me, it's just so much easier to believe in that than in a vast series of potential accidents or cataclysmic happenings. We believe, we say, the first cause is God. But the skeptic will say, well, where did God come from? And then we say, well, he's always been in the beginning. And that's what the scripture is saying. He's always been. We see it in the first verse there where it speaks of creation of space and matter. But it also notes the beginning of time. Then if you go to John chapter 1, verse 1 in the New Testament, where uh, John is writing to the, to the populace. It wasn't to a certain person, but it was to the populace. And he draws from the same scripture of Genesis 1.1. And in John 1, when he says this in the beginning was the word. And the word is simply this expression, this thought of God. So God sent his word that is really literally the expression of who he is and his thinking and his being. And it says, and the word was with God. And, were, and the word was God. So the first verse of the Gospel of John speaks to the pre-incarnate Christ. He didn't just show up at Bethlehem, loved ones. He has always been. He simply came at Bethlehem to show us who God was. And we see Jesus in this transcendent existence before all other things. He is in relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, which is where we see the Trinitarian uh, picture of them in Genesis 1.26 where it says, let us create man, them, you, me, in our image. I love that because what that means, friends, is that every person, every one of us has this imprint, this fingerprint, this touch of God upon our lives. If you would turn over to Romans chapter 1. 
because we really see the root problem today and throughout history of why people struggle with this. Paul writes this Romans is simply a theological treatise of the work of God in salvation and he draws upon a number of themes but if you look at verse 18 it says this for God's wrath is revealed Romans 1 verse 18 for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people and he begins to say why who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth because of who we are birthed in sin because of our humanness well we want to suppress or put away the truth since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. What he's saying here, he's talking about this revelation, that every person gets this revelation of the living God. You will either express it in some way and receive it, or you'll suppress it. He says, from the creation of the world, God's individual, invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made. See, that's why when you go outside sometimes, that's why when I go to the golf course or I go to the Pacific Ocean, I just, I just feel God because I see this beautiful green or I see the power of this ocean, the waves coming in, and they only come in so far, and then they go back out. There's order to it. And he says those things are evident of what God has done and what he's made and who he is. As a result, people are without excuse. Nobody will be in heaven that hasn't had this revelation of God, loved ones. Excuse me, in hell. Everybody gets this revelation of God, but they will either suppress it or they'll receive it. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, or they didn't show gratitude. Instead, in their thinking, it became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal, this awesome God, for what? Images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Throughout history, we've seen people make all of these different gods, small g, that they worshipped. And he says, because of that, therefore, God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worship and they served something created instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Man, does that sound like our world? I mean, we're not running around worshiping a lot of four-figured little critters and creatures but we worship a lot of other things, don't we? Material and people and things. It's because we've lost sight of the awesomeness and the revelation of the creator. See, that's the root problem. Men, when they saw God, they could acknowledge, they didn't acknowledge him as God and they became foolish in their thinking. They became darkened in their hearts because they didn't want to, well, receive and believe and they suppressed the truth. Why? Here's why, because people don't want to be accountable. Because when you become accountable to this kind of stuff, now you can't do what you want to do. But you see a lot of people, you talk to people, sometimes they don't want to come and, and, and engage in the life of God because they say, it's going to change my life. Well, no kidding. And they don't want that. They don't want accountability. They don't want somebody 
that has oversight of their life. And so this depravity thing that is kicked in, they begin to deny the deity because if you don't believe in the deity, you don't accept the deity, you don't have to respond to it. If I don't like it or agree with it, then it doesn't apply to me. And that's how people live today. You study the Old Testament. We see the book of Joshua. God leads his people into the promised land. It's a powerful picture. He says, I'm going to give you what I've always promised. And it's good. It's wonderful. You've got to fight for it. But when you get it, it's going to be good. And they got it. And it was better than good. But then they didn't pass on to the next generation these things and revelation and purposes of God. And what happens in the next book, the book of Judges? It's this truth was lived out there. God's people begin to lose their way because this was the phrase that keeps coming up. And they did whatever was right in their own eyes. They had forgot that God had a claim on them and over them. So they begin to do whatever was right in their own eyes. Do you see that in our culture today? It's because we have no moral, we don't have any moral foundation. We don't have any moorings that go deep into the revelation of who God is. And so people say, well, you know, whatever will be. So we become kind of like animals because that's where some of us believe we came from. What do animals do? They devour each other. It's survival of the fittest. It's the law of the jungle. And if human beings, if we're nothing more than grown-up goo, what does it matter? Remember, how we think about our saves will ultimately dictate how we, how we behave. And I believe if we believe that we come from the animal kingdom through this kind of evolutionary hypothesis or process, we'll just be animals who ultimately act like animals. I love this, what somebody wrote. If I came from slime, I can act like slime. And I can live in slime all the time. I can live like a dog and I can die like a hog and no one can tell me how to be any different. For you see, if I come from the goo and I ended up in a zoo... And now I'm me and you're you and we can just say, hey, don't bug me, man, for I can just be a party animal. I'll party hardy and I'll do what I want to do because there is no God because I came from the goo. That's kind of corny, but that's how people live. See, the Bible tells us that the real issue is found here in Romans 1. Verse 18 says this, men suppress the truth by their wickedness. They knew he was God, but they didn't want to acknowledge him as such. Why are people so opposed to the creation? Well, that's the first thing. A few weeks ago, remember, I talked out of John chapter 3. At the end of the verses, in John 3, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said this. This is the verdict. What's the verdict? It's the final word. Light has come into the world, me. But men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. They didn't want to give up their deeds for the light. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. See, the core of the controversy, loved ones, I don't believe is first and foremost science, but it's really a struggle between opposing worldviews. Are we here and free to live as we please? Are we ultimately accountable to the living God, the creator of the universe? See, in our intellectual pride and in our wicked hearts, it's so easy for us to rebel against God and his truth. So today, the bottom line of our, bottom line of our belief system 
is it all comes back to Jesus. And we'll see this in Genesis. Is Jesus the Messiah who claimed to be God incarnate and put his seal approval on the creation story and the Genesis narrative? See, if Jesus is God, he knows because he was there at creation. And we can engage intellectually with scientific theory and belief and evidence. But the bottom line always becomes, is Jesus who he says he is? Who he claims to be? Remember back in his day, people were incensed by him. Well, Jesus said this, okay, that's all right. I'm going to give you one sign, one sign only. What was the sign? He said this, you're going to destroy this body and I'm going to rise again. And he did. He did. He resurrected from the dead because he was who he said he was. And that's what we always come back to because we're going to see Jesus in these early chapters in Genesis. Paul said it this way, if it isn't true what Jesus said about himself, if he didn't resurrect, he said we are most people to be most miserable and ultimately most pitied to live for a lie, but we don't live for a lie. Here's what I love about the creation narrative. And in just a couple of minutes, you're going to see some people get baptized. This is the point. The Genesis account is a personal account. Read through Genesis 1 this week, and you'll see God said, God said, God did, God placed, God performed, God called. It's a personal narrative to the people that he created. It wasn't God on the heavenly veranda go, whoo, be created, and then he just kind of let us go. We see this personal God in Genesis chapter 3 after creation. He saw that man was lonely, and he said, it's not good. And then after he created him, a wife for him, he said, it's very good. And so in Genesis 3, he's walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. And then in Genesis 5, it says that he walked with Enoch, who was a righteous man. It says he knew Noah. And then it says throughout the Old Testament, he leads his people. He's with them. He guides them. He protects them. He watches over them. He was a God that was with them. And then we see the advent of Jesus Christ who comes in Matthew chapter 1. It says that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then he goes, he dies, and he resurrects, and he goes to heaven, and he sends the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, to live in us. And then we see in Revelation 21, verse 3, it says that as he's recreating heaven and earth, and he says, I am their God, and I will dwell with my people. From the beginning to the end, we see these powerful statements that this is a God who is with us. He didn't just create us. And that's the greatest hope that all of us have. And I want us to be so mindful of that as we walk through these early chapters of the Bible.